0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Let's pray together as we stand. Uh, Father God, indeed, what a friend we have in your Son, the Lord Jesus, uh, the one whose everlasting arms do enfold us, uh, the one whose love is like a shield, uh, the one who carries the weak and heavy burden, the one who is there in the midst of the trials and temptations, uh, the mighty one who has conquered the grave as we have praised him for tonight, uh, the one whose purposes for us are very good. And so, Father, we do pray uh, here as we open your word again that we would meet your son in it, that we would trust him, that we would live for him. Amen. Please take a seat. And uh, please uh, turn in your Bibles uh, to James uh, one last time. James uh, chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 uh, to 20, page 1216. We've been in uh, James for some months now, and here we are uh, looking at the final section, James 5, 12 to 20. Blaise Pascal once said, "'However vast are man's resources,' Uh, He is capable of but one great passion. However vast a man's resources, he is capable of but one great passion. So let me ask you, it's really the question that we began this series with uh, way back in April. What is your one great passion? What is your heart's desire? Uh, The desire that uh, whatever your resources may be, vast or small, that you would be willing to throw your whole resources Uh, behind it. To purpose, to plot, to plan your life towards this one passion, what would that purpose be? If you could simplify life to that extent, what would it be? It is a tantalising thought, isn't it? To simplify life to the extent that uh, we have now one single-minded purpose, one passion. And as we've studied this magnificent letter of James, uh, we have had revealed to us not our one great passion but our God's heart's desire for our lives a desire that he is purposing towards in all things a desire that he has in fact thrown all his vast resources behind he has spared absolutely nothing towards this desire not even the life and death of his son he chose to give us new life by the blood of his son that is the price he was willing to pay He chose to give us life forever by the power of his son's resurrection. And now he has chosen to work in all things, all things we face, all the details of our lives, even the trials uh, to make us, and we prayed this earlier, mature, whole, lacking nothing. There is your God's heart's desire for you and your life. He's not necessarily plotting towards your popularity He's not necessarily interested in your financial success, your family's comfort, health, career, uh, your for relationship. He is not plotting towards material satisfaction for you. He's not plotting towards anything else that your heart may long after more than anything else. No, his heart's desire is single-minded. That in this world you may become, by faith in the Lord Jesus, mature, complete and lacking nothing. And as we hear the gospel, every time we hear the gospel, whether it be for the very first time as we come to faith in the Lord Jesus or perhaps the ten-thousandth time we hear the gospel, the call of the gospel is always the same, to abandon our own desires, whatever they may be, our own plans and plotting, and instead line up our little hearts with his giant heart's desire for our lives, his purpose, which is gloriously good. How good? He plans to cause you to become more and more like his glorious son. That's how good. And as we've seen uh, all the way through this letter, this this plan to uh, make us like his son, mature, complete, lacking nothing, uh, the way we do line up with that purpose, line up our hearts with his heart is, well, it's very simple. It is simply humbly heeding the word he speaks to us, a word that is purposed in that direction. A word, uh, do you remember it, back in chapter 1, that we must not merely listen to, but do what it says. And so here, as we reach the end of James tonight, we will hear that call again. Have a look at verse 12. Above all, says James, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. At first, this verse, if you're looking through James, looks like just a randomly inserted proverbial saying that James has thrown in. Oh, I forgot to put that earlier in the letter. I better put it in before I forget. But actually, he is driving at the same point. He has been driving at all the way through this letter. Here he is uh, quoting his brother, Jesus, from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Back in uh, Matthew chapter 5, we hear Jesus say these same words where he tells us, uh, those of us who are his followers, that there's no need for oaths, for promises. Those who live by faith are those who hear God's word and do what it says. It's that simple. They don't need to promise to do what it says, to vow, I'm going to in the future do what your word says. They, well, they just do it. Their yes to that which God calls them to do is simply... Yes. And their no to that which God has called them not to do, for instance, don't show favoritism as we've seen in James, is simply no, I will not do that anymore. It is simple, unqualified obedience. And the reason Jesus uh, said that in Matthew 5, and it's the same reason that James quotes it here, is that he knows the problem with our promises, our vows that we might make as we come to the end of this series. We've seen all these things that we are not to do and we are to do, and we say, yes, that's me, from now on I'm going to do that. But the problem with our vows and our oaths and our promises is that they come so often from a double-minded heart that, well, likes to hedge its bets, unwilling to fully follow God's word. And so we qualify our oaths. Yes, I'll obey you, Lord, but not under this trial. Maybe after this. Yes, I'll obey you, Lord, but we're well, not in this situation. Yes, I'll obey you, Lord, but well not to that extent. Well not in this area of my life. James has told us, as his brother Jesus did, that when we try to hedge our bets to avoid total commitment, it is a sign of a double-minded heart, a heart that either doubts that God is committed to our good when he speaks his word to us, or thinks that we have a better good than the good he is planning towards, and so we chase after that good as well as what he has planned. And this letter of James, as we've gone through it, has revealed to us that this double-mindedness shows itself in the details of our lives. The symptoms are, well, enormous. Fearful responses to trials and loss, a quickness to frustration and anger, heartless religion, favoritism, an untamed tongue, selfish ambition and bitter envy, fights, quarrels, slander, arrogant plans of tomorrow, impatient grumbling, all of these things are signs that our heart is double-minded. But what's wonderful here at the end of this letter that uh, I don't know if you felt this but I certainly have as we've studied it that has exposed that in us again and again and again. James reveals to us the powerful weapon we have at our disposal to keep ourselves persevering in single-minded faith. Already we've seen one of the means God gives us and that is humbly heeding his word and now we see the perfect partner for that humble prayerfulness in all situations now you see that in verse 13 have a look Uh, James says uh, is anyone in trouble he should pray is anyone happy let him sing songs of praise and whatever your situation the answer is the same as far as James is concerned if you want to persevere by faith the way you do that is you get on your knees and so if you're in trouble And the word trouble here is the same word we saw right at the start of this letter. Trials and uh, things that buffet us in life that knock us as we try to persevere by faith. If that's the season you're in right now, if if your little boat of faith is being smashed by the waves, pray. And it's not just here a call, as we've seen in James, to pray that the trial may end, that the storm may pass. That's a good thing to Pray. But beyond that, as we saw in this letter, it's a call to pray that the relentlessly good purposes of God will be achieved even here, even in this trial. And of course, praying that we would have wisdom to understand how that is working out in this. So if you're in trouble, pray. And then we have the, if you like, the opposite extreme. Is anyone happy? Is that the season you're in? Is, is life one golden walk at the moment? Is life one glorious ashes victory after another? Is that, is that where life is for you? I'm in a time of trouble, personally. If that's you, if life is good, if the sun is shining, if summer is good, if life is good, then pray. Give thanks. Rejoice. Thank him. How good it is. Don't give thanks to yourself that you've enabled life to be manoeuvred in such a way that everything is beautiful. Give thanks to the God who loves to give good gifts. You see, we persevere by faith at both extremes, the trials and the happiness, and everything in between by humbly heeding and humbly praying. But as we've seen all the way through this letter, it is these sort of different situations that uh, our double-mindedness shows itself in. And so in the trials, more likely than prayer, we move to fearful attempts at control. I'm in a trial. I will try to get myself out of this. No, says the Spirit of God. Pray. But how often we don't. And when things are happy, when things are good, uh, how often we lurch towards pride and selfish ambition. I want more of this. No, says the Spirit of God. Rejoice. Give thanks. Praise him, not yourself how often we don't, how often in these and many other circumstances we drift towards this double mindedness and we get stuck there. But our God is relentless in his purposes and so here at the end of James the Spirit of God speaks the word of God to recall us to return again to him when we drift towards double mindedness. And it's a call, in fact, that comes in the form of another call to pray. Do You see it there in verse 14, a sort of a third situation in which we should pray. Verse 14, is any one of you sick? Well, he should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. Is any one of you sick? Uh, Many argue that the situation that James is speaking of here is a physical sickness. If that's where you're at, if that's your situation, uh, then you should pray. However, I want to argue that James has at this point in mind something very different to that. He is speaking of what he has been speaking of all the way through this letter, in fact, and that is the spiritual sickness of double-mindedness. It's not to say at this point that the scriptures don't talk about healing from physical sickness. We are to pray boldly for that. That's part of praying when we're in a time of trial. Praying that God will heal as he does people from physical illness and disease. But it must be said that our God does not promise that a faithful prayer for physical healing will be answered with that healing. And yet, if you look in James 5, verses 15 and 16, that is exactly what is promised here. And so I want to argue that this is indeed a prayer for spiritual sickness. Now, there are a number of good reasons for holding such a view. Let me mention some of them briefly because it's important we get this clear. Now, firstly, in the passage, consider the words that James uses when he speaks of sickness. Uh, verses 14 he uses it and in verse 15 they're two different Greek words. The one in verse 14 literally means weak and when it's used elsewhere in the New Testament almost always it refers to spiritual ill health and the same is true in verse 15 uh, when he speaks of sickness there it is the word for weariness uh, which is always in the New Testament that word referring to those who are weary in faith, limping in faith. And then when he gets in verse 15 to say the prayer of faith will make the sick person well, the word wellness here is the same word that he's used already four times in his letter, again to speak of spiritual wholeness. Literally, it's the word for save, uh, salvation. There's the words. But also consider this uh, symbolic act that you get in verse 14, the anointing with oil. Again the most common use of this uh, symbolic act in the scriptures was when a person was being anointed to, to be set apart to single-mindedly serve the Lord somebody who had either never done that before or was given that uh, done it was done to them for a renewed task consider the words consider the anointing with oil consider the context of the passage in verses 7 to 11 as we looked at last week we saw a call to patient perseverance in the face of suffering And we've just seen in verse 12 this call to simple, unqualified obedience to the word. And as we'll go on to see in verses 16 to 20, it is a call to bring those who have wandered from the truth, who've wandered into double-mindedness, to come back with the promise of restoration. And then, of course, there is the context of the whole letter, where we've seen the purpose very clearly, that humble, heeding, persevering faith will lead to, uh, well, if you translate one verse four differently, healthy wholeness, lacking nothing, that you will be well. That's God's purpose for you. And finally, and this is the clincher for me, and I think James has put it in there very deliberately, have a look at verses 17 and 18 of our passage. Now consider the reference here to the prayer of Elijah. Elijah is cited here for us as a model of faithful prayer. But have a look at the example that uh, James cites for us here. If this was a passage in verse 14 about physical healing he could have easily gone to 1 Kings 17 in Elijah's life, where we have this amazing moment, this desperate moment really, where Elijah is in the, uh, the house of uh, the widow from Zarephath and there her son, her only son, has just died and there is Elijah who prays his prayer that life would come back to this boy and it does. Amazing healing. Instead, what James cites for us in 1 Kings 18, a scene on the top of Mount Carmel, a scene focused on the people of God being so double-minded in their faith that along with worshipping the true God, Yahweh, they worship Baal. And James tells us that Elijah prayed that a drought would come on the land because they had stopped listening to God's word. Elijah then challenges the people to stop wavering, stop being double-minded, to either follow the Lord or follow this false god. And when the Lord shows up on that mountain and proves that he is the one true God, they respond with wholehearted faith. It is then that Elijah prays again to restore the rain, now that the people of God are once more heeding the word of the Lord. This whole scene that James has picked up here is to show us the power of prayer to restore the spiritually unwell. So therefore, I think it is very clear that what James is speaking of here when he says, is anyone sick, is a call to those who are spiritually double-minded uh, to pray. And so there it is, 14 and 15, is anyone sick, then you should pray with your elders. And why the elders? Why, why call the elders in if that is where you're at in life, if you are spiritually double-minded? Now, we'll consider the cause of the disease of double-mindedness. It's caused by being a person who has listened to God speak, but as we saw earlier in James, forgotten. Chosen not to heed that word, instead chosen to heed uh, wisdom from below, which doesn't lead to health, but disorder. And the symptoms of that disorder, well, we've seen many in James. And so if we are struggling with a disease of double-mindedness, the cure is found in the cause, in returning to humbly heeding his word. And that, for me, is where the elder comes in. And the New Testament makes it very clear that the ministry of the elder in the local church is the ministry of word and prayer, which is exactly the treatment that the double-minded heart needs. And so you are to come to the elder and the elder will symbolically anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord an act of uh, a life now being once more set apart to the Lord. Here is a life ready once more to be marked again by the Lord's name and his purposes. And here in verse 14, it is, I think, an act of repentance for the double-minded. The act itself, the oil, is not important. What's important is the change of mind and heart, moving from double-mindedness to single-mindedness through the ministry of word and prayer. And with that in mind, let me suggest a couple of implications for us as a church family if this is the instruction we are being given. Firstly this, see the moment that each Sunday gathering like this one is. Now see why our gatherings are shaped the way they are. An elder who has been set apart by the church family with the task of word and prayer brings not his own words to the church family but the word of our God to bear on the people. It's a word that when the double-minded heart hears it, it calls them again and again to repent and believe single-mindedly. So let me ask you, uh, this night, July the 14th, did you come here tonight ready to do that? Uh, Ready as the word of God was ministered to you to repent of double-mindedness? As you came to the Sunday gathering, did you realise what a serious moment you came into? A moment to engage with the living God as his living word, sharper than any double-edged sword, cut to the heart of you. Expose double-mindedness. Did you come ready to do business with him? Come ready to humbly listen, come ready to abandon areas of double-mindedness. Were you ready for that? That's the preparedness we need to come to every Sunday gathering with. And also, as a, a second implication, see this. I suspect in these two verses there is also a call for some within our congregation to take seriously just how unwell you have become spiritually and approach the elder. Come to Paul, come to me, come to people you know in this church family are charged with the task of ministering word and prayer to the church family to grapple with your spiritual unwellness with them. And now in a moment, uh, we're going to see in verses 16 onwards, this ministry of word and prayer is going to expand out to be a whole church ministry. But first, see this specific call to deal with double-mindedness with an elder. Now, Who should do that? Who should heed this call rather than this more general one to come? It's a question worth asking. Otherwise, what we'll have at the end of this is if you're like me, every one of us should have felt as we've looked at James, double-mindedness exposed. And we'll form a queue outside the vicarage and it will be so long... Paul will be there to 2020, dealing with us all. The clue here as to who should heed this specific call, I think, is in the symbolic act that has been called for, this anointing with oil. Now, this is a call for those whose double-mindedness has grown to such an extent that their lives are not set apart for the Lord, but for something else. For those who are so stuck in double-mindedness that it's not just a tendency from time to time, but it is the very mark of their lives, your default. It might be a double-mindedness that shows itself in an ongoing besetting disobedience in a specific area of life, A, a trial that you refuse to accept, a temptation that you keep returning to, a quickness to anger that keeps showing itself and you keep justifying it, a driving selfish ambition for material wealth that you refuse to step back from. An unmerciful judgment of another Christian that you hold on to. Is that you? Or it could be that it shows itself in the the fact that you are just plain tired. Tired of persevering as a Christian. Uh, Your little boat of faith has been so smashed by life, life that you are going under. Weary and ready to stop. Right at the end of what you think are your resources for persevering in faith. I remember a mate of mine uh, growing up in, in high school. We went on a camp together. His name was Simon. and In the years that I knew him, uh, he was always, if you like, miles ahead of me in Christian maturity. He was one of these guys you looked up to and thought, I wish I had a Christian life like his. And there we were uh, off uh, camping one day, and we were walking in a shallow river together, and he was walking slightly ahead of me, and he said to me, he just turned around one day, and he said, mate, I'm tired of being a Christian and I'm going to give up. And I let him walk away. Didn't have an answer. I wish I'd read this passage. Tonight, the Spirit of God speaks his word to you if that is where you're at. If you're tired and ready to give up and says, don't, he will not let you walk away. And so he speaks to the weary ones tonight. He speaks to those on the very edge, not even sure why you're here tonight, other than just habit. Those who, your heart for the gospel went long ago. Those who are sick of soul. The spirit says, don't walk away. Speak to someone. Speak to the elders. Pray together. Hear the word of grace together. Let's start again. You can. Because do you see how God responds to such a prayer? Verse 15. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. I mean, what did you expect? Perhaps that's why you're so weary. Perhaps you've forgotten he's like this. Here is the God who gives more grace, and this is his church. Here is a place for fresh starts. Here is a place where those who have stuffed up need not be afraid. Now, here is a community of double minded sinners meeting with the God who gives more grace. And this is made even more clear as we move to the the final section, this broadening out of this ministry from verse 16 onwards to be a one-another ministry, a whole church ministry. While some are specifically set apart as elders, this is a ministry that we are all to be a part of. Because the reality is, for all of us, when the word of God is spoken faithfully to us, it will expose again and again our tendency towards double-mindedness. And as such, verse 16, we are to be in the habit of confessing our sins to one another. Now, immediately as we read that verse, I reckon we have a problem. Uh, we're not good at this, uh, even perhaps fearful of it. Perhaps even thinking that such openness amongst us, amongst one another, would be, well, a little bit odd. I might do that with my family, but not, well, the church. Uh, which of course betrays how little we have grasped the new life we have as the children of God. And the effect of this hesitancy, I think, is more enormous than we perhaps have taken in. When we are hesitant to confess our sins to one another, it affects us as believers. Uh, We more and more as a community lurch towards uh, legalism, desperate to appear righteous, desperate to appear uh, not to have any problems. And we know that when when we are unrighteous, when we do things that are are clearly sinful, we try to cover them up for fear of being exposed because, well, everyone else is a clean skin. It affects believers, but it also affects unbelievers. It tells a lie about the gospel we proclaim. It says to the unbeliever who comes amongst us, to be a Christian means you're sorted. Got it all sorted. And so they either go away, uh, disappointed and unable to do that themselves, or well, when they find out that they are, uh, we are not sorted, our cover is blown and our gospel is denied. Now The truth is, the gospel and the king of the gospel, Jesus, comes for the sick, not the well. And so we must see that this is part of humbly heeding the word he speaks. We must be prepared to be open about our double-mindedness with one another. And so as we close, let me finish briefly with uh, a few implications again in regard to this whole church ministry of word and prayer. Uh, Firstly, see that it is, verse 16, and again picked up in 19 and 20, a personal ministry. You see the phrase there in verse 16, it's one another, isn't it? Uh, While the whole church may be about this ministry, it's not necessarily true that the whole church needs to hear me confess my sins. Uh, The picture is about one another gatherings, one-to-ones, triplets, prayer groups, small groups. And so I think it means that our small groups should be places of confession. As God speaks uh, when we meet week in, week out, as he exposes these things in us, we should be prepared to own up to it. Our small groups are places where Christians serve each other with a word and prayer to present each other mature and complete. And part of that is this confessing and praying for one another. But even within those groups, I think there are times when it is best for there to be an even more personal dealing with sin. And so let me encourage you, if you do not have someone you pray with regularly, someone who you are accountable to, someone who asks you tough questions, then find that person. Someone who is close enough to you to know the nitty-gritty of life, to ask those questions and to pray for you. And finally, see this. now, See who can fulfill such a ministry. What sort of person is suitable to pray for another Christian in this way? Or put it another way, who should we seek out to pray for us? Do you see James' answer? Someone like Elijah. <laughs> no, not a prophet. Uh, do you see how Elijah is described there? He's someone just like us. And yet, you see his pattern of life? Someone dependent on the Lord in prayer. Someone who cares enough about God's people that he would pray for them. Someone who hears and heeds the word of God and prays in line with it. James says, choose someone who is righteous. Someone whose life is lined up with the purposes of God. That's their aim, which includes someone who is willing to confess and be prayed for themselves. So as I conclude, let me say this. Now, The longer I'm a Christian, uh, I reckon the more I become aware of how precious fellowship is how much I need my brothers and sisters to persevere in faith. There's a myth that does the rounds from time to time that you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. That's nuts. Part of God's extravagant kindness to you as his child is to bring you into his people, to bring about his purposes in your life. He has given you the very precious gift of brothers and sisters. And how often... How often he uses them to carry us to his word and to pray for us, and how we need that. I leave you with these amazing words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer speaking of this very thing. And God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is so often weak, but the Christ in his brother's heart is sure. Well, let's pray. And Father God, we thank you that you uh, will not let us wander away. That part of the way you hold us persevering in faith is you call us again and again to return to you. And part of the way you call us to return to you is to bring one another before you. And so Father, we pray that you would shape us to be a church that does that for one another. uh, That we may be together mature, complete and lacking no good thing. Amen.